Hello podcast listeners. In the last few years, farm animal advocates have secured major corporate policy wins, but have had less success on the political front. Today, we have Lewis Bollard. Lewis is originally from Wellington, New Zealand, and he now leads the Open Philanthropies Open Philanthropy Projects work on farm animal welfare. In this episode, he talks about the corporate and political advocacy that's been done within the farm animal uh, world and the, uh, the lessons that we can take from that, from that work uh, for other EA causes. Today's episode is a version of Lewis's talk at EA Global Boston in 2017. Enjoy. So as a little background, um, the Open Flying 3 project, uh, farm animal welfare is a relatively new cause area. We've been in this for about a year and a half. In that time, we've made almost $30 million in uh, funding commitments. So a lot of these are over two or three years. Um, and if you look at that kind of breakdown, um, one thing you'll immediately notice is that there's a lot of corporate campaigns. So there's the cage free corporate campaigns, there's broiler welfare corporate campaigns. Some of the general operating support and fish welfare are also corporate campaigns. Uh, and there's almost no political advocacy in there. And so part of my uh, job today is to explain why that is. So I want to cover three things today. Uh, the first is the success of corporate uh, farm animal campaigns and, and why we think uh, they've succeeded. Secondly, the failure of political farm animal campaigns and some, some possible explanations for that. And thirdly, what lessons we can take for EA policy advocacy in general. So beginning with the success of the corporate cage-free campaign. So what you're seeing is a typical battery cage. This was actually a photo I took myself on a, a factory farm in India about a month ago. Um, but these look very similar anywhere in the world. Um, and until two years ago, uh, about 290 million of the 300 million laying hens in the United States were raised in these cages. And it's still the case that about 6 billion of the 7 billion laying hens globally are raised in these cages. So it's a very standard form of production. But something started happening in really early 2015. There'd been, there had been sort of some work before this, but really it, it only became an organized uh, movement in, in early 2015, where a number of groups started to focus their attention on battery cages and specifically on corporate campaigns to get rid of battery cages. And so they began these uh, campaigns against the company where it was just a very clear ask of all of the companies, which was you need to publicly commit to phasing out the use of battery cages within your supply chain within the next 10 years or less. And this campaign really took off in late 2015. So what you're seeing here, this graph, is an indication of how many hens will be affected by these pledges once implemented. Uh, in terms of the time at which those pledges were secured by advocacy groups. And what happened in, at the start of 2015 was the groups secured pledges from major food service providers like Aramark and Compass Group and Sodexo. In late 2015, they got the major uh, fast food companies. So in September, they got McDonald's. After that, they got Burger King and, and a number of the other major players. And then in early 2016, that major spike you can see in the graph is when they got the grocers. That's when Walmart came on board, Kroger came on board, and other major players. And so to explain what we're talking about, this is, is the transition that we're looking at. So what you see on one side is a photo, uh, again, that I took in a battery cage facility. 
And what you're seeing on the other side is a photo of a Natura Avery system, which is the most common form of Avery system, the most common cage-free system that is being adopted by US producers. And as you can see from that photo, the, it's still a factory farm. It's still crowded. The, the hens certainly do not have access to the outdoors and will not have access to the outdoors. Um, but there are some, some things that I think are pretty significant improvements there. Most noticeably, they have more space. They have the ability to rise up and, and perch, which we think hens have a pretty strong preference to do. They have access to nesting boxes and to litter, to dust bathe. Um, and we actually have a, an ongoing internal investigation at the Open Philanthropy Project into the relative costs and benefits of, of cage versus cage-free production, which will hopefully be online in the next few weeks. So that, that will also kind of provide some additional information on this. Um, but so one of the, the, the kind of critical questions about these corporate campaigns is, are they just fluff? Are they just words? Are they, are they meaningless, essentially? And, and partly, that's still something to be tested. That's something we, we still don't know if Walmart's going to make good on its pledge. But what you're seeing here on this graph is, first, the blue line is when these pledges kick in. So how many hens will be affected as these pledges kick in over time? And as you can see, most of them kick in in 2023, 2024, 2025. Um, but what you're seeing on the red line, which I think is encouraging, is where the egg industry is at in terms of how many hens are now in cage-free production. So we're already at a point where there are four times as many US hens in cage-free production as there were two years ago. Um, and the way that that line is currently projected to go wouldn't get us to where we want to go if, if the egg industry caters off. But this is really, from our perspective, less an argument that these campaigns aren't working and more an argument that there will need to be an enduring effort to hold companies to their pledges, to implement milestones, to make sure that they follow through. Another major question that we had about the cage-free campaigns, in addition to whether they will result in, in actual changes, is whether this was a replicable strategy. And there's certainly a valid argument that by the time that we got involved in supporting the cage-free campaigns, which was late 2015, there'd already been a huge amount of advocacy, and, and there'd already been a huge amount to build up the political environment. There'd been undercover investigations for years. There'd been people talking about battery cages for years. And so it's totally possible that at that point it was kind of inevitable that US companies at some point were going to go cage-free. But that kind of advocacy had not been taking place all over the world. There'd been some of it in Europe. There'd been a small amount in Canada, but there really hadn't been anything like this in Latin America. And so we made a set of grants in the middle of 2016 to the same groups that had been spearheading the work in the US, Mercy for Animals, the Humane League, and others, and made grants to them to extend that work into Europe and into Latin America. And what you're seeing here is a very rough tally as of today of how many corporate victories they've secured on Cage Free in each of these countries. And so what you see is, first of all, in Canada, they've had phenomenal success, which isn't really surprising given it's the same companies, the same environment. Um, but I think what's really heartening to me here is not just the UK, but also seeing Brazil and parts of Latin America where there really hadn't been these, this kind of advocacy previously, these campaigns coming in and working as, as a model that can get change in those countries too. And I think the even bigger test of whether this is replicable will be whether it's replicable for broiler chickens. So as we speak, advocates in the US have now really turned their attention from cage-free campaigns to the welfare of broiler chickens who are raised for meat. There are about 300 million, cage, uh, sorry, 300 million laying hens at any point in time in the United States. There are about 1.5 billion broiler chickens at any point in time. It's the largest uh, farm animal industry in the United States. And so far, things have been encouraging. 
Advocates have been pushing companies to either adopt global animal partnership certification or to adopt a set of four reforms focused around improving genetics, living conditions, um, slaughter, and getting rid of overcrowding. And so far, they've clocked up about 35 wins, including the major food service companies again, and now starting to include some of the major fast food companies like Burger King and Subway. So this raises the question of, of why these campaigns were successful. And if you're interested in reading more on this topic, we just put up a blog about it at openphilanthropy.org where we go through what we think are kind of all the explanations of this. But I want to focus on three things that I think were critical. The first was the focus on a clear goal. So for years, for decades really, animal advocates had focused on a huge variety of issues. And understandably so, given there is suffering baked into the factory farming system across animal testing in all areas. And even as of two, three years ago, there were corporate campaigns on dairy welfare, corporate campaigns on beef cattle welfare, on chicken welfare, on pig welfare, and so on. And so something that I think was critical was the groups came together about two years ago and said, we're all going to focus on battery cages. We're all going to make our goal to get rid of battery cages in the United States. And that will be the only goal for the present time. And that not only created a momentum and created more resources focused on a topic, it also created an easier ask of companies who weren't being confronted with a myriad of issues, but rather one very clear-cut issue. The second thing that I think was, was critical was the willingness to use hard-hitting campaign tactics. And what, what you're seeing here is a website put up by Mercy for Animals. It's wendys.chickentorture.com. Uh, I also recommend walmarttorturesanimals.com. Uh, and as you see, they're willing to confront companies with hard-hitting advertising. And you know, there's a video here linking the company to animal cruelty. And I think what's important about this is that the animal rights movement has always had radical advocacy. But often, that radical advocacy has focused on radical asks. And we've, and we've had some success with that, to be clear. But what I think is kind of unique is radical advocacy focused on very moderate asks. So asking for something relatively small in the scheme of things but being willing to go with radical tactics to seek that goal. And then the third thing which I think has been really critical has been a willingness to test and use multiple levers of change. And there's really been a kind of trial and error process, tri trial and error process here where groups have just tested and said, does this tactic work with this company? And if it doesn't, they move on to a different tactic. And I think a good example is the uh, 2015 campaign against Costco, which was the first major grocer to commit to go cage-free. It was about a six-month-long campaign. It opened with uh, a major undercover investigation done at one of Costco's, uh, Costco's largest egg supplier. It then uh, produced an op-ed in the New York Times written by Bill Mayer, and that was, that was uh, in the New York Times the same day as the investigation launched. Advocates then started a change.org petition that got over 100,000 signatures. They then got a US senator to write a letter to the company and then they got Brad Pitt involved. Uh, that was the game changer. Um, but uh, there, there were obviously a variety of other tactics used in this campaign. But I think what this sort of shows is a willingness, first of all, to persevere in the campaign and to just continue until they win, but also to just keep seeing what works, seeing what gets attention, seeing what really gets to the company. So turning now to the political farm animal campaigns. And Really what I want to explain here is, is why we haven't seen similar political process, uh, progress in the US to what we've seen on the corporate front. And I think the first and strongest explanation is the political and regulatory capture by agribusiness lobbyists. 
And so this is kind of an example in point. In 2015, the New York Times ran this major front page expose about the abuse of animals at a place in Nebraska called the US Meat Animal Research Center. And there are two things that really stand out to me about this example. The first is that this center was run by the US Department of Agriculture. The US Department of Agriculture is the only federal agency charged with any regulation of animal welfare in the United States. And yet it was the one in this case running cruel experiments with the sole aim of increasing agricultural productivity and profitability, which is the agency's dual aim and clearly a superior aim in its mind to promoting animal welfare. But the second piece was the political capture. So here you had a very clear set of facts. You had national outrage about it, a huge amount of coverage of the issue. You even had congressional hearings. And no agricultural group wanted to come on record defending this. And so there was a bill put forward that was a very moderate, very small fix. It, it literally got rid of a loophole in the Animal Welfare Act. And no agricultural group came out against it publicly. And initially, a number of senators and representatives signed on as co-sponsors. Then the agricultural groups went around privately and met with all the representatives and senators and said, hey, we don't like the president of anything happening on animal welfare at the federal level. The bill ultimately only got 10 co-sponsors in the Senate and died. And when you have a clear-cut issue like this, such a small, moderate ask, and it can still only get so far, to me it's a powerful indicator of, of the challenges we face on the political front. The second set of challenges on the political front relate to political structure. So there are two parts of this that I want to highlight. First, what you're seeing um, are, is, is a map of the United States highlighting states by whether they've passed positive farm animal welfare protection laws uh, of, of various kinds, banning veal crates, gestation crates, or battery cages, um, and whether they've passed negative laws, uh, specifically ag-gag laws, seeking to criminalize undercover investigations on factory farms. And what's really noticeable about this are two things. First, the states where all the farm animals live, Iowa, North Carolina, Georgia, have not only not passed positive laws, but in those states, agribusiness has enough power in the legislature to pass negative laws to prevent even undercover investigations. The second thing which is kind of remarkable to me is even these states that are in green or in blue that have passed some kind of positive law, it was almost always because of a ballot measure or the threat of a ballot measure. So in both California in 2008 and in Massachusetts in 2016, there had previously been bills in the legislature seeking to ban veal crates, gestation crates, battery cages. Not common practices in the states with the exception of battery cages in California. And even in these incredibly liberal states with small agricultural industries, these bills died in the agricultural committees. And this is the other structural issue, is that all farm animal welfare bills start in the ag committee. And the people who choose to sit in the Ag Committee are people who represent rural areas. And so these bills died. And sure enough, when they got placed on the, the ballot, in California, 67% of Californians voted for it. In Massachusetts, 78% voted for it. And yet, even with that kind of support, these bills originally still couldn't make it through the state legislature. And then the third, the third issue I want to highlight, which I think goes beyond the United States and is a global issue, is the salience of this. And so what you're seeing in this map is, is a really rough indication of states globally in terms of whether they have any legal protection for farm animals uh, and, and whether that's enforced at all. And, and what I really want to highlight is just that it's a, it's a tiny fraction of the world's countries that have meaningful farm animal welfare protections, a few northern European countries. Um, in much of the rest of the world, 
you either have no protections or very weak and unenforced protections. And I think what's, what's interesting here is that when polls have been done, certainly in Europe and in the United States, and to a lesser degree there have been polls done in Latin America, you find consistently across countries, 70, 80 plus percent of people, saying they support increased protections for farm animals. So on the one hand, you would think that, you know, particularly in countries with less of a lobbying influence, maybe this would be reflected on the laws. But what you also see is when the polls ask, and they normally don't, but when they ask about salience, when they say, rank these issues, rank this alongside of healthcare, jobs, education, animal welfare ends up like number 20. And in that environment, it's totally rational for politicians to say, I know that 70% of people say they want this, but for all of them, it's voting issue number 20. And then I've got 10% of people over here who it's voting issue number one, they want me to go in the other direction. And in that case, it's a real problem that for us, for, for most people, this is a less salient issue than it is for factory farmers and other people who have their jobs uh, tied up in the system. The final explanation I want to give on the political point is the lack of bipartisan support. So what you see here is a list of co-sponsors of the last serious piece of farm animal welfare legislation introduced in the Federal Congress. This was in 2010. Uh, and what you can see is of the 40 co-sponsors, there were only two Republicans. Both of them are no longer representatives. Uh, and it's, it's just been a trend over time that more and more so, only Democrats will vote for this issue. And the problem that creates is that even if you get all the Democrats, you're relying on having the House, the Senate, and the presidency in Democratic hands. And in reality, you don't even get all the Democrats because there are some Democrats who represent factory farming districts. And so you end up with this impossible math to get to the number you would ever need to pass federal legislation. So what can we learn about this for EA policy advocacy? How can we avoid the, uh, the slip-ups that have been made? So I think one common uh, lesson here is to focus on clear, narrow goals. And I don't know if this is necessarily a great example of this, but I, I, I like, for instance, with Deworm the World, the Deworm the World initiative of, of uh, Evidence Action, the Give Well Top Charity, they have a very clear sense of the problem and a very narrowly defined it. And when you compare this with like the UNICEF website, and I recognize UNICEF is a far larger group, it's just so much clearer here what they're doing, what their goal is, and how they're going to do it. And to me, that seems analogous to what has helped these corporate campaigns succeed. I think another key insight from my perspective has been to focus on institutions rather than individuals. And so this is uh, an image from the Fed Up campaign, which is a, a campaign that the Open Philanthropy Project supports on, on monetary policy. And, and this campaign has not made any effort to tell all Americans they should care about monetary policy. What it's done is it's targeted the key decision makers at the Fed who will actually decide monetary policy. And I think in some ways that seems really obvious, but I think for a long period of the farm animal movement, what we tried to do was convince consumers one by one to go out and, and buy cage-free eggs or to you know, go vegetarian, which could, could still be an effective intervention. But what you see at the institutional level is you can have the same impact as persuading 100,000 people if you get a major institution. But it's almost never going to be 100,000 times more difficult than persuading that one individual. And the final, uh, the final thought is uh, to find the low-hanging fruit. And, and again, uh, this is the sort of thing that, that seems obvious until you realize how uncommon it is. Um, but looking in the area of biosecurity, I thought it was an interesting example to look at the Blue Ribbon Study Panel where they explicitly have focused on national security. 
Now, national security may not be the greatest biosecurity threat, but in this political climate, far more likely to get attention than something about a more speculative health or catastrophic risk. So with that, I'd like to open up to uh, questions. And if you're interested in uh, uh, getting more of, of, of what I have to say, you can either follow me on Twitter or I have an incredibly hard to uh, read newsletter URL. But if you sign up for that, uh, if you can make your way through it, uh, you'll, you'll, uh, you'll get a monthly newsletter with some, some thoughts. Thanks. For more talks like this, join us at EA Global London on the 3rd to 5th of November 2017. To attend, please visit eaglobal.org. We can't wait to see you there. Thanks for listening.